Well, this is Lesson 30 in the study of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10, and I want to begin by reading from the beginning so that we keep the main topic in focus. You know, the last couple of weeks we've taken a few rabbit trails and spent a few weeks showing just what the first few verses mean for our personal lives. The first verse tells us that the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming. And Paul told us that the law was given as an example. And so we focused on what is meant, what these verses mean to us on a personal level as we walk through life. How Israel lived through the wilderness journey and made those mistakes that we might learn lessons. Like grumbling and complaining as Israel did in the wilderness. Who here has not ever grumbled and complained instead of praising God for what they had? I don't believe you. (laughs) Or not trusting God to care for us and keep us as they did when they balked at entering the land. But the fact is, while all of that is absolutely true and great lessons for us and very important, that's not what the author is getting at here in the first few verses. He's comparing the offerings and Messiah... And I want to cover it today as he intended because this is really one of the more faith-building passages of Scripture. So let's begin by reading the first few verses. It says, The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. You see, the focus of the author in this section of the letter is that the offerings are a shadow of the coming of the Offering of Messiah. The word for offering is korban, and it means something brought near. The korbanot, or the offerings, were given by God for the people to draw near to God. Either because sin had separated them from God, or just because they wanted to draw nearer to God, as in the case of the peace offerings. The offerings were God's teachings of the Messiah. They foreshadowed The Messiah who would come and bring the ability for the offer to truly be reconciled to God and draw near to God on an eternal basis. Understand that without these offerings, the world would have no clue as to how to draw near to God. What God required to cleanse one from the sin that had separated them from Him. So the offerings taught the world the cost of their transgression. And that it would take a life given for them to draw near to God once again. And they were shadows, not the reality themselves. The offerings were unable to make perfect forever the offer on an eternal basis. But they foreshadowed the one whose offering would make perfect forever those who wanted to draw near to God. And I think we covered this pretty well. But now we're going to move on to verse 5 and it says... Therefore, when Messiah came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. 
with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Okay, so the first thing we need to correct here is it says, the bo- a body you have prepared for me. And it's really a quote from the Septuagint on Psalm 40. And it's not very good, because if you look at the Hebrew, it would literally say, but ears you have dug out for me. And the Hebrew Bible, as well as the King James, in an effort to make it clear, read, but ears you have opened for me. In other words, you have opened my ears that I can hear your commands and I can obey your words. The Targum renders it much the same way. It renders it this way. You have scooped ears for me to hear your redemption. And I really like the way the Targum put it because that is exactly what Messiah did for us all. So here's the ticket. Messiah was born into Israel. He had his ears open that he might hear God and keep his commands, that he might fulfill Deuteronomy 18 and speak the very words of God. And we get the same thought of ears being opened in Isaiah chapter 50 in verses 4 and 5. It says, The Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. It's speaking of the Messiah. And if we were to read farther, it would go on about Messiah's suffering. And in this passage about the Messiah, he tells us the Messiah's ears have been opened to hear God. He did not rebel. Or we could say he did not stray from those words and those commands, but he kept the commands of God. God instructed his tongue to speak the word of God. As Deuteronomy 18 tells us, Messiah would speak the very words of God. And so in the case of Hebrews 10, the author quotes the Septuagint saying, A body you have prepared for me. But the Hebrew more accurately says, My ears you have opened. And it would be more accurate. Why would he need his ears to be opened? Well, if you read the words of Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 4, which Paul had done, and he quotes in Romans chapter 11, we find out why. It says in 11 verse 6, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. So Paul tells us why Messiah's ears need to be opened. Because God had given Israel ears that could not hear. So again, the reading, my ears you have opened, really makes Much more sense. He says, with sacrifice and offerings you were not pleased. And this again is kind of a contradiction to some of the rest of the word of God. Because God will often say of the offerings, a sweet savor. A pleasing aroma. And so forth. He says, but he says, with sacrifices you were not pleased. And so what does he mean? Contradiction is kind of a contradiction. Well, if we look at Psalm 50, we can probably understand a little better. It says in verse 15, The Lord has opened my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You see, God was not pleased with the death of sheep goats and bulls. But what he was pleased with was the contrite heart that brought them. That was a sweet savor to the Lord. However, what is truly a sweet savor to the Lord is conveyed to us in Proverbs chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, 
where it says, All man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And again, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, it says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed better than the fat of rams. And so the Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings or in delight in offerings at all? Not really. He delights in the contrite heart of the offer. However, what he truly delights in is, as Isaiah said of Messiah, opened ears to the word of God, a life that has not been rebellious and a life that has not drawn back from his word. And so the writer continues with this Psalm 40. And he says, then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And so the author wants us to understand through the inspiration of the Spirit of God that the person spoken of in Psalm 40 is Messiah Yeshua. And not just there, but the whole of the Torah, the substance of the shadow that the Torah and the offerings of the Torah, they are being cast by the Messiah Yeshua. He's the substance of those shadows. Remember, the author started out by saying that the law was a shadow of the good things that are coming. And here he says, Messiah, it is written of him in the scroll, or we could say the Torah. So here's the obvious question for me. And it should be anyone who's really thinking about this. If the Lord did not take pleasure in offerings, and if offerings did not make the offerer perfect in order to draw near to God, why then did God require the lives of all of those offerings? Why didn't he, he demand the execution of goats, bulls, and sheep, and doves? Why not offer some other form of restitution for sin that didn't require the death of these animals? I mean, after all, these animals were his creation, right? Did he not love this part of his creation as well? Did he not say after creating these animals that they were good? Right? And not just that, but remember, the offerings, uh, the offering uh, of a sin offering was an expensive proposition. One of these animals was expensive. And that was certainly part of the lesson, that, that sin costs. So if this was the case, why not spare the animal and just make the offer or pay the equivalent to the temple treasury or something? Well, I believe in the next session, the, uh, the, uh, the author anticipates this question, and the author sets out to answer this very question. And in the process, he gives us the Holy Spirit-inspired truth of Psalm 40. In speaking of the Messiah, he says, First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. You see, he repeats that the Lord does, did not delight in offerings. He was not pleased with them. After all, they were his creation as well. Why, why would the creator delight in the death of his creation? What he delights in is one who will do his will. He did not delight in them, and yet he required them in the Torah. And then he adds that the Messiah came to do his will. The point being, he did not delight in the offerings. And again, we find this all over Scripture. Hosea 6 says, For I, do, 
For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so, but the offer points out the fact that God did not desire offerings, but he did require them. So still the question is why? Not, why not something else? Well, he answers that in the next. He says, He takes away the first to establish the second, that by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Messiah Yeshua once and for all. Now, this is his answer. It's the answer to our question, but it's kind of hard because these verses aren't really translated real well. And these verses, think about this, these verses are typically interpreted to say that the Lord took away or did away with the offerings when Messiah came and was offered once and for all as the sin offering, sacrifice for sin. So the offerings were no longer needed, no longer valid. And the fact is, if you ask the average believer who's a student of scriptures that have been, of course, filtered through the church teachings, they will often tell you that Yeshua's coming, did away with the sin offerings, they're no more. Just read right here. This once and for all sin offering of Yeshua replaced the sin offerings of the temple. And here's why they are mistaken in that idea. You see, the first problem with this type of thinking is that the author has already told us that the blood of goats and bulls never made perfect those who wanted to draw near to God. So if that is your thought, if you think that Yeshua replaced the sin offerings and the burnt offerings, then you're missing the author's point because what you're saying is that the offerings at one time did take away sin. And Messiah replaced them. That's a mistaken idea. That's not what the author is saying at all. He is saying that the offerings are a shadow or a teaching of the Messiah. And while the offerings are, were valuable in dealing with sin in the context of the temple ritual, they never restored man into ter- eternal right standing with God. And so the first problem is if you say that the offerings were replaced by Yeshua's offering, you're attributing something to the offerings that they never had. They never possessed nor were they intended to. And just a quick look at the book of Acts and history in general destroys the thought as well. First, history tells us that the offerings continued 40 years after the death of Messiah. Acts tells us that Paul went up to the temple to participate in the offerings. So no replacement there. Then we can look at Ezekiel chapter 46, verses 11 and 12, and of course Jeremiah tells us that the offerings will be offered in the third temple. So the Lord didn't set aside the offerings as in Messiah put an end to the offerings because they continued and they will be instituted again. So that cannot be the meaning. And yet it's almost uh, translated that way in almost all Christian Bibles. And this is where it gets interesting. You see, this is the only place in all of Scripture of all of the Messianic writings, that this Greek word is translated this way. I put the definition, there's definition up here. And notice that one of the meanings is to kill. In fact, it should be the main meaning as we're going to look at the 25 occurrences in the New Testament. I want you to notice uh, of the 25 occurrences, six are killed. Three are killed. 
Three are slain. Three are slew. Two are death. Two are slay. And only one says away. And only one says taken. See what I'm saying? I put them in red so that you could see this. This is the only place where it's translated this way. It's most often translated kill or killed or slain or death. And so right away you have to ask yourself, why is it translated that way here? This is the only place in the word where it's translated taken away. And the answer is, I don't have a clue except that it probably fits the theology of the church fathers and the translators' theology as well. A little more modern lexicon, the Lonida writes it this, uh, lexicon translates it this way. To get rid of someone by execution, often with legal or quasi-legal procedures. So, let's see what we have here. The author begins by telling that the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming. Then he tells us that the law, in the law, it's written of the Messiah. And he tells us that the offerings didn't take away sin, implying that they were just a shadow, a teaching of the one who would come and take away sin. And if we consider what he has said before, taking away the offerings makes no sense. But if we look at this in the Greek, it could be translated this way. I put a few things in parentheses. That wouldn't be part of the translation, but just to help you understand. He put to death the first, which would be the offerings, to establish the second, which is the will of God. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Yeshua the Messiah once and for all. He put to death the first, the first or the offerings, to establish by way of being shadows the second, which was actually the will of God. And that will of God was that Messiah would come and suffer once and for all, for all sin. All the offerings foreshadowed. As Yeshua said, this is the will of God. He tells us what the will of God is in Matthew chapter 26. As he's in the garden, he says, going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. It was the will of God that Messiah die and accomplish what the shadows foretold. And the reason is the ultimate will of God stated for us in John chapter 6 and verse 40. It says, for, the, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. In other words, He put to death these shadows of the Messiah to establish what Messiah would come and do. Not the offerings are over, but God put these offerings to death to foreshadow the true offering that would make perfect those who want to draw near to God. And if we translate it that way, it certainly keeps in mind the original thought, law is a shadow of the good things that have come, but not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never make for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who want to draw near to worship. And it also agrees with Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the offerings have not ended but will continue as shadows, not of what Messiah will do, but then in the kingdom they will be shadows of what Messiah has done for us. And the writer continues in verse 11, he says, Day after day the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Something you know we haven't covered yet. And you may not have considered 
the sin offering didn't take away intentional sin. The sin offering was only for unintentional sin. Slip-ups. Mistakes. When the author says sacrifices never took away sin, as in making those perfect who wish to draw close to God, he may have had this in mind. Yeshua's offering, though, will cleanse you from all sin. Intentional sin and unintentional sin. As we're going to see in a moment, Jeremiah makes it perfectly clear. But before that, we get to verse 12, and it says, When the priest had offered one, offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool, because by this one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. Messiah's sacrifice, once and for all sins, and by that one sacrifice, he did what no offering could have done. He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You're being, you're made perfect. Isn't that comforting? I mean, think about it. Make a mistake and you're covered. Just get up, repent, and go on with Yeshua who has and is perfecting you. And he'll quote Jeremiah now to tell us just how complete this is. He says this in verse 15. The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Remember that the offerings were for unintentional sin. But Yeshua's offering is for intentional sin as well. And here Jeremiah tells us that God will remember their sin no more as in unintentional, but also their iniquity or their lawless acts as it's translated here. And the Hebrew word here is avon. It means iniquity, mischief. The Greek word used in in, in, uh, Hebrews 10 is anomia, and it means contempt and violation of law, iniquity and wickedness. And so the offering of Yeshua cleanses you from unintentional sin and intentional sin. And that's a really good thing. Because think about it. He perfects you forever because he forgives even your intentional sin. You know what that is, don't you? That's the sin that occurs after you've read the Torah, after you've read the Messianic writings for their accurate rendering of the commands of Torah, and you're tempted one day, and the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart, convicting you that what you're about to do is a transgression of God's law, and then you do it anyway. And Yeshua forgives you for that as well, as the slips you might make. That doesn't give you an excuse to go on sinning. That just means he forgives you. You better get up and repent and go on with Yeshua again. Now listen to the end of this. Or the next few verses it says. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain... That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience 
and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We're going to cover these verses a little closer next week, but I had to read them in the context of what we just covered. How wonderful that Messiah has come. And now we have a way to draw near to God through God's Son. We have access to the holy place on a personal level, on a corporate level. You know, anciently, you didn't get the high priest to listen to your personal requests and then go into the holy of holies and plead your case before God. But our high priest resides there right at his right hand. He has his right hand in his right ear. And he's listening to your personal requests as well as the pleas you make on a corporate level. The pleas you might make for Israel and for others. And this is so, what he's saying is this is so, so that we may serve God by spurring one another on toward love of our neighbor and good deeds. That we might serve God by gathering together to encourage one another and be encouraged as we see the day of trouble approaching. We've been cleansed of unrighteousness and that we have now access and we can now serve the living God. You know, this is truly one of the more wonderful books of the Bible as you really start to read this and understand it, but it's been so badly translated. And I be, you can begin to see why this amazing book is such an amazing book. You know, I know of nowhere else in Scripture where the totality and the completeness of the gospel is laid so bare for you to see. Nowhere else where the intricacies of God's plan are made so clear for us to see, stated so plainly for us. And when you understand this, then you begin to realize what there's such an attack on this book over the centuries. Over the centuries, men have tried to remove this book from the Bible. And even today, we have heretics trying to remove this book from the Bible in the Messianic movement. There's an attempt to discredit this book. And praise God that they failed and we have this wonderful book because God is in control. Amen? Amen. 